2: You can listen to TalkEasy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Lefsetz Podcast. My guest this week is Andy Slater. You know him as a manager, a record company executive, Now he's got another feather in his cap. He is the writer and director of the new movie Echo in the Canyon. Andy. Hi, Bob. Good to see you, man. Okay. So how'd you come up with the idea for this film? Well, I was a
5: journalist, you know, in the late 70s and and 80s, a rock critic. And and the idea of of people listening to each other and these records being traded uh, back and forth was always there. But, you know, you come to a point in your life where... You sort of reflect back on what you've done, as uh, you know, in an attempt to go forward. And that moment came for me when I was looking at this film. I had just left Capitol, which we will describe as fired, and uh, and I
4: saw this film called Model Shop. Okay, just just to stop there for a second, because that's featured in the film, and you talk about it, but it was kind of hard for me to Google it. And the reason I asked this is, how did you find it?
5: Jacob and I were sitting on my couch trying to figure out what we were doing. Jacob Dylan and I were sitting on my couch and, and we saw this thing on TCM. Oh really? So it was completely random. And, you know, in the, in the film, we start seeing all these places where we would go all the time. And it was like, you know, the farmer's market and in La Brea and Santa Monica. And, and it just looked beautiful. It looked like, and it was not, you know, shot in 1967 by a French director named Jacques Demy, and, and, it reminded us of, you know, the reason that we came here and the beginnings of the music scene. You know, you never know how something's going to inspire you. and so That's this, for sure. <laughs> and so the sight of that made us think of music. And so we said, oh, you know, you know, you know the birds, you know that Bells of Rimney, I love it. And we started talking about all these songs. And I said, let's, let's go what if we do a record of these songs? And, and Jacob was like, well, which songs? And then we got out a guitar, and we started listening to the songs, and, and, that, and then it evolved from there. OK, do you play the guitar? I do. How well? Well, I've been playing since I'm 14, and Peter Buck from R.E.M. and I had a band. Wow! How yeah. did that
4: come together?
5: Well, we were the only two guys at Long Street Hall at Emory University <laughs> that had guitars, and and I had a Carlo Rebelli Stratocaster, which was the set cheap Sam Ash version. You know, I had a Hendrix White, and and Peter had a real Fender Stratocaster. And so we would jam, in, you know, in in our, in our dorm, and, and it's funny because we would, you know, we would play like in the midnight hour, and you know, when you're jamming with somebody, I play chords, and then you play lead, and then you play chords, and I play lead, and everything Peter did sounded like Last Train to Clarksville,
4: and <laughs> and he made a career out of it,
5: you know. Okay, and,
4: but when did you realize this was not your path?
5: Well, I, you know, it all goes back to the hot tuna story, Bob. You right. Know I mean? this it, <laughs> our audience is not
4: here uh, as part of that story. <laughs> Well, (laughs) yeah, tell it, tell it. It's a good story.
5: Okay. So in 1975, uh, my friend Larry Dale and I, who were freshmen at Emory University, wanted to go see Hot Tuna Play. And they were playing at the Gora Ballroom in in Atlanta. And we said, look, we got to go down there at 5 o'clock. We got to get online early because we want to be in the front. So we got there at 5 o'clock and it looked like nobody was there. I thought they canceled the show. Maybe that's how they do it in Atlanta, but at least in the 70s. So we went we went around to the back, and and we saw these boxes that said Jefferson Airplane on them. And we said to this guy, hey, are those re- official Jefferson, Air- Jefferson Airplane boxes? And the guy said, yeah, you want to lift them up those stairs? And I said, could we? <laughs> so, <laughs> so Larry Dale and I, we lift the boxes up the stairs, and you know we load their gear in. And I say to the guy, hey, do you think if we come back after— we could we could carry these boxes out? The guy goes, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so we're all ecstatic. We're lifting Jefferson and Evelyn boxes. Anyway, after at the end of the night, we helped them load their gear and we say, Look, you guys are playing at the Academy of Music in New York. Do you think you would get us in next week if we come and help, you know, help you load those boxes? And they said, Yeah, look, if you're there, sure, we'll get you backstage. Because Vinny, the guy who was the, the roadie was a guy named Vinny Del Bono and he was from New York and then we became friendly and and you know, got drunk together. Anyway, we go to New York and I am standing backstage and I say to Vinny, you know, you guys don't have any tour jackets. Like you don't have any satin jackets. That like, everybody has satin jackets now. I have an idea to make a satin jacket. If I give you one, will you show it to your man? And he says, Yeah, sure. So the next day I go to Paragon Sporting Goods on 17th Street. I go downstairs and say, Hey, I wanna make a baseball jacket. Can you point me in the direction of the guy who does that? And they point me downstairs, and they, I say to the guy, look, I want to do it like San Francisco Giants colors. I want a black satin jacket, I want orange stripes, and I want Yorma, this is the name on the back, and I'm going to draw you the logo, and this is what the logo looks like, and can you have the guy do that and send it to me? And I give the guy the money, and he sends me the the, the, the prototype in Atlanta, and I send it to Vinny, and I get a phone call. Vinny says, Yorma loves the jackets. We want 25." and you can ship them to me. And I said, no, 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 I wanna bring them out. And so, so of course I whack up the price of the jackets to pay for my plane ticket and, <laughs> and get me a little spending money. And I go out there and they take the jackets. But what that leads to is you know, a, a kind of friendship with Hot Tuna. And when Hot Tuna breaks up, I ask if I can interview
4: Yorma for my school paper.
5: And I interview Yorma for my the school At the time,
4: are you already writing for the school paper?
5: I think I wrote a record review. Okay. You know, and at, for the Emery Wheel. And Yorma lets me interview him. And I, you know, thought this is it. This is the pinnacle. You know, <laughs> I've got the hot tune, tuna breakup story. And I and I send a letter to Jim Henke, who was the music editor at Rolling Stone at the time. I said, I've got the exclusive if you want it. You know, I sent one of those schmucky letters anyway, which which didn't get returned. But uh, anyway, so that started my path in, you know, in in journalism. And as it relates to Peter Buck. When R.E.M., you know, Peter, we graduated. He moved to Athens. He started this band, and I wound up writing the first story about them in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution because I eventually went to work there. I was very lucky. Another uh, you know, strange story the how I got there at well, 22. Well, let's hear it. Well, so I was writing for the Emory Wheel, and, and I had all these clippings, and I was at a party, and there was a guy— named Roger Pavey, who was the entertainment editor of the Atlanta Journal. And he said to me, I I, you know, we were at this party and 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 I had this weed. And I said, hey, you know, you wanna you wanna smoke some weed with me? And I didn't really know who he was, and he said, Yeah, you know, and it turned out this is who he was. And I said, look, you know, I'm writing for my school paper. I'd like to do some reviews for you. Can I send you my clippings? And he said, Yeah, yeah, sure kid, send it to me. So I got my clippings together. I sent him to Roger. I didn't hear anything. Three weeks later, I call and I drop at the paper. I say, Hey, it's Andy Slater, I sent you my, my clippings, you remember? He says, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, you got any more of that weed? <laughs> <laughs> I said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, All right, well meet me at Manuel's Tavern and you know, we'll we'll you know, we'll talk about this. So needless to say, they started assigning me reviews and, and How much
4: was a review worth back? Forty dollars. Okay. Actually,
5: not bad. Uh, you know, I mean, at that time, forty dollars was like a hundred bucks, right. so so it was good. And that event, they liked my writing, you know, and and so they started giving me more assignments. And and one of the assignments that I got was, you know, to cover to cover the Athens music scene, and I wrote the story about REM, and then eventually wrote the first story in Rolling Stone. About REM, the New Faces piece, but so that's really the, the guitar okay, let's, playing let's go, portion. Let's
4: go a little bit slower. Okay. So when you're at Emory, do you know you want to be a journalist?
5: No, I, I actually, you know, there were guys at the time working at Columbia who were giving records to me for free, like guys who became you know big executives there. John Faggott who was the head of promotion at Capitol, he worked there, and a guy named Alan Orman, and a guy named Ed Neufeld, I think, still at Warner Brothers and those guys were giving me records and remember this is 1975 76 the record business is as you know a colorful wonderful place to be probably like you know the tech industry is now and to me it just all seemed shiny i mean i was studying like you know political science my parents wanted me to be a lawyer i mean you know, I would have said my major was like the Grateful Dead, because all I really wanted to do was follow them around and any, you know, and find any tributary that 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 Jerry had gone down, whether it was Merle Haggard or, you know, or Hank Williams or, or any of the, the great stuff I learned from listening to those records. But um, you know, my it was really the journalism became the the, the outlet for me to express the things I felt about music and which I, by the way, don't think I was very well expressed, but, you know, I, led me to to being able to get inside and, and see this world that was mystical to me.
4: Okay, but before you fell in with the Hot Tuna, did you believe you could make it as a musician? No. Okay, so we're I, having fun in college.
5: I mean, you know, making it as a musician, I just, I, you know, I thought I could play things that other people had 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 played. You know, I think there's... There's several kinds of of accomplished musicians. You know, there are guys who can absolutely mimic what they hear and go on the road and make your record come to life. And then there are are guys in a studio that you work with who, you know, can hear melody and hear counterpoint and bring sections to to life in whatever instrument they are, you know, whatever you need. And I clearly was not that. So as somebody who was just mimicking what I heard— I kind of felt like you know tracing paper fake, so I really
4: didn't do it. But with all that. through the ensuing forty years, you've continued to play the guitar. Well, yeah, I actually, I, I have a, I have a band
5: which uh, which which we play. Well, anyway, we, I no, ha- no, no,
4: no, you I, have a band. You know, uh, how often do you play?
5: Well, we were playing every Tuesday night, you know, at this bar, and uh, and occasionally. You know, I'm I'm a little apprehensive about talking about this band because it's because it's turned into well okay. In nineteen ninety one or nineteen ninety-two, we I was at a point in my career where I had had it was a transitional place. I had been a manager and I had managed the Beastie Boys and Lenny Kravitz and co-managed Don Henley. And all of that went away, and I sort of started over,
4: okay, just to be clear, that yeah. went away because
5: well, I think each of those situations, you know being a manager sometimes has a lifespan, and sometimes you know your part in it is one thing, and the part in it is that it's just it just you know it 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 evolves that way i you know in the, in the case of Lenny Kravitz, I think he was used to. Having a very hands-on, day-to-day personal manager that would do the, those kinds of things, and for me, management was was a as a partnership, was a creative partnership, you know, as much as it was a business partnership. And I, I think Lenny was just getting used to having somebody other than the guy he'd been friends with forever. And I wasn't really going to do that, um, you know. The, the with the Beastie Boys, it was it was one of the most amazing, you know, times of my life because. I was around the making of Paul's Boutique, right? Which was legendary. Which is just an incredible record, and they, you know, were and the surviving members still are, you know, just so brilliant. Um, and that was, I think, that record was difficult because it was coming off the heels of uh, a huge success at Def Jam,
4: and licensed ill,
5: a licensed ill, and and. You know, they had expectations of what they wanted to do, and they made a record that was completely groundbreaking and outside of any uh, a- any place to fit in radio to drive it. I mean, hey, ladies, you know is one of the great singles and that artful synthesis of all of those styles that are in that record. Uh, At that time, just didn't, was not a follow up to Fight for Your Rights Party. As you know, and as you so eloquently in your column stated many times, you know, radio listeners often want to hear something that sounds familiar to them and it drives the business of radio. And if you don't fit into that format, unless you have a very powerful Uh, machine behind you that can keep a record on the radio till it tests well, at least at that time, you're going to have three weeks and you're going to be done. And in the case of Paul's Boutique, you know, Capitol was trying very hard to mimic the success of License to Ill and Hey Ladies did not sound like Fight for Your Right to Party and the band was also in a transitional place where they were starting to play instruments and touring in the way they had before was impossible. So all of that you know, led to a kind of one-album, uh, you know, lifespan for me. And, you know, we remain great friends, but I, I, I'm off on a tangent, but... You no, know, the that, tangents are cool. You know, that... Digression uh,
4: is the spice of life. <laughs>
5: <laughs> you know, that uh, that led me to a place where, you know, and, and Henley and I had a... I mean, I, I learned so much. I mean, I would say 80% of what I know about making a record and being uh, a manager in, in the record business, really from Don.
4: So tell, me, tell us two things you learned.
5: Well, I learned about the attention to detail. And I learned that uh, in making something, you must examine and re-examine and be sure before you put it out into the world. And... I also learned to approach the, 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 the putting those things out in the world with dignity and grace. And he was always somebody who was smart, articulate, and, uh, and you know very thorough about, about how he did what he did. And I had a lot of respect for him. And you know, it's funny because I was a journalist at a time in the late 70s, what was very fashionable at that time was to sort of uh, deconstruct the thing that the Eagles and Phillywood Mac had built and, and punk rock and that you know, ethic was, was uh, the, the sign of the times. And when I met the Eagles and interviewed them and uh, went on the road with them in 1979, I found Don to be this really well-read, you know, well-spoken um, uh, writer. He was like a writer's writer to me. He was, a, you know, the lyricist. And so, when I eventually came to work with with uh with him as a solo artist, you know I said, my friends who are journalists will really you know really like you if you just talk to them because you know it's clear that you're a man of letters um and that was you know part of the beginning of our you know uh friendship and working relationship but
4: that started when so
5: i came, i went to f- I left journalism. Let's see.
4: Well, the Eagles came through town in Atlanta. And Salters, tell your experience there. Well, getting an interview from the
5: Eagles was, you know, was the, the genesis for it. The newspaper wanted a story on the Eagles. And I, I, when I, you know, all these things happen to you in your life and you just, you know, you don't really know where they're going to lead you. But I was on an airplane when I was 13 going to Washington, D.C., from my cousin's uh, high school graduation. And there were two guys sitting behind my grandparents and I, and I, one of them was wearing a live dead t-shirt. And, and I was like, that oh, it looks like Bob Weir. So I, I got up on my chair and I said, Hey, are you, are you famous? Are you, are you Bob Weir? And the guy says to me, no, man, I'm no more famous than you. I'm Eric Anderson. I'm a songwriter. And the, <laughs> and the other guy next to him said, well, I'm Michael Klefner and I'm the program director of WNEW." And he had this big handlebar mustache. Anyway, I later, you know, years later, after the hot tuna, you know, roadie, Vinny, and, you know, escapade and I became friends with those guys. I met, you know, their friends who worked for the Grateful Dead. And I was luckily, lucky enough you know, at nineteen or twenty to be backstage at the Academy of Music when the Dead played. Uh, I think it was I think it was the Academy of Music still then. Um when they played, and there was this guy with the handlebar mustache right. back there. And I was like, "Well, that's the guy I saw when I was 13. And I said, hey, man, I met you with my parents, and you're at WNEW. And he said, no, I uh, had a promotion for Atlantic Records. Here's my card. And uh, hey, give me a call. I was right. like, well, you know, write me a letter. So I wrote him a lot. I kept, you know, I kept hocking him when I was in college. I would write him you know, these letters. Hey, I really want to work for Atlantic Records. Hey, you know, I really like the record business. Hey, I'm a journalist now. Hey. Then I saw I had a, you know, this is 1977 and 79. I start working for the newspaper and the Eagle, they needed an interview with the Eagles. And I read in billboard that he went to work for Irving Azoff in frontline management. So I, I call up Michael Kleffner and I say, hey Michael, I'm now in Atlanta. I'm at this big paper. I need to interview the Eagles. He says, all right, I'll, I'll introduce you to Salters.
4: So Who's I the call, PR guy?
5: The, the PR guy for this the Eagles. So... I, <laughs> So I call up Larry. So I say, "Hey, Larry, uh, man, Slater, and I'm a pop music critic at the Atlanta Journal. I'd like to interview Eagles." And he says, "They don't do interviews. I gotta go. Goodbye." <laughs> just like shit. What do I do? I need this story. Damn it. Okay. I go. I got it. Okay. I call Larry back. Larry, uh, hey, it's Andy Slater, uh, from pop music critic, Atlanta Journal. How you doing? Uh, yeah, yeah. What, what? I said, look, I don't want to interview the Eagles. I want to interview you. I want to interview you. And I want to interview with Irving, and I want to interview the crew, and I want to do a story about what it takes to bring the Eagles to Atlanta. Because I was thinking, okay, I'll get out there, I'll get on the road. Right, I'll get right. Felder's maybe Don Felder will walk by at a Coke machine, and I'll ask him three questions, and I'll string together a story. So he says, okay, uh, you can come meet us in whatever they were, Durham, North Carolina. I said, okay. So I get the photographer, me and Rick Diamond, the photographer. We go, we drive out there in our car. We go, we, we go see the Eagles. You know, we're talking to Irving, we're talking to Larry, and I'm hanging around, and I'm trying to talk to Felder. Irving sees exactly what I'm doing. He says, hey, listen, I see what you're doing. He says, okay, yeah, I like you guys. Tell you what, if you let Henley approve his quotes that he says to you, you can interview the Eagles. I said, well, is this a break in journalistic? Nah, it's not really it. I'm just going to let him, you know, fact check his quotes. Okay. I said, okay. So Irving lets me interview the Eagles. He says, you come to the 3E party gives me a gives me a 3e pin I go to this party it's 1979 <laughs> it's it's in the top of a hotel suite it looks like Playboy after Dark I'm like man this, this is cool I'm 22 and so I you know I interview Henley Irving sits there middle of the interview Henley says you know what I like this guy. Now, I like the Eagles in 79. I mean, I love Desperado. I think now, Listen, were... I was
4: there from the beginning. I'm okay. a huge Eagles okay. fan, okay. even though it was unpopular. I don't know. It's kind of like uh, so many other acts where it's turning around.
5: Yeah, you, but, you know, when you listen to- even the architecture of sound of Desperado, and you listen to the reprise of the Duel and Dalton reprise, and you hear the banjo, and you hear the room sound, and you, you realize what they created. I mean, it's really brilliant. And so for me, talking to Don about that stuff, I, I wasn't as interested in this petty cultural war between New York and LA that was going on, I was interested in, you know, the ideas behind the songs and not so much the lifestyle. And I think Don responded to that and that's eventually how we became friends. But they came to Atlanta, they liked the story and I was standing backstage uh, during the encore with Irving. And I said, you know, you guys don't have tour books. You should really have a tour book. And you should take me and Rick on the road with you. And Rick can take the pictures and I can write the copy. And Irving said, that's a good idea. Get, get it. You see that car over there? Just get in that car. I go, okay. So me and Rick, we get in the car. And the next thing I know, there's 12 cars and we're pulling out of the Omni and we're at an airport. And Irving says, get on that plane. I said, well, my car's at the Omni. What do I do? He says, don't worry, we know the Omni. Next thing I know, I'm in, I'm in Cleveland. Rick and I have no luggage. Only the clothes we're wearing, <laughs> and we were on the road with the Eagles. And Rick eventually took the pictures, and I wrote the copy, which Salters edited, and it turned into nothing. But, you know, they did the tour book. And, and you know, that was the beginning of my friendship and relationship with Larry and Irving. And ultimately, they they did introduce me to, you know, Jan Wenner, and, and I eventually became a writer for Rolling Stone and for Billboard and for People. And really, you know, they... They like gave me the imprimatur, like this guy's cool. You can you can talk to him, and he's not gonna you know jerk you around for sensationalism. So, you know that was just that portion. Okay, of so head. how do you
4: make that transition from writer to business person?
5: Awkwardly, um, I. So Salters had a job at Frontline, and his job was
4: Frontline was the management. Company. Yeah, Frontline
5: management. He was you know even though Cameron Crowe very astutely in an article referred to Larry as vice president in charge of whatever Irving tells him to do. He actually was you know, the head of the album covers and publicity and, and, you know, it was a junior manager. And so when, he, when Irving went to run MCA records in 1982, well, right. One or two. maybe two or three, uh, Larry went with him and they were looking for someone who could take Larry's place. And now I had interviewed all of the clients. And the main thing was, I think Henley, yeah, he liked me and, and I had a you know, they were trying to find somebody, I guess, that they could trust. And, uh, Michael Rosenfeld and Howard Kaufman, uh, I had known and they said, and I was going to try to move to California because my girlfriend at the time was going to be a doctor and she was going to do her residency at Kaiser Permanente. And I didn't want to lose her, which I, this was, you know, one of the, one of the few times I chose love over business. Um, and I was leaving journalism because I actually, I didn't think I was any good, to be honest. I mean, I wasn't going to be, you know, like David Frick or Charles M. Young or Hunter Thompson or any of the guys that I thought were great, you know, or Tom Wolfe, the great journalist, right. you know. So I said, that I should really get out of this. And so I, I got this job uh, with, with frontline management doing Larry's job. And so it was, you do, you're going to be in charge of publicity and you're going to be in charge of uh, album covers. And there's a new thing called MTV starting and you you know you can do that because uh, that's what Larry did and and so you know my my transition to to businessman is really around two things. One is I'm going to make videos and the first one of the first videos I make is with Henley. And I had seen this French uh, there was a French artist named Axel Bauer, and there was a song called Cargo. And I saw this video because a friend of mine, Gail Sparrow, who actually worked at MTV, sent to me, she used to work for Epic Records, and and I started it to Don, and I said, hey, Don, you know, this guy, this, this, this thing looks really cool. Maybe we should give him Boys of Summer and, like, do something with this guy. It looks like the Twilight Zone. It's cool. And he said, okay, we'll send it to him. So I sent it to Mendino, and Mendino, you know, loved the song, and... He did the video and Don won video of the year that year from that video. And then I became the manager. So that was one pivotal moment for me from 83 to about 85. Um, I mean, that was my job really. I was like the young creative guy with a head full of crazy ideas about photography and things to do and you know. And so I think these guys who were 10 years older than me and sort of looking to, I don't know, get input from somebody other than an older businessman, which Howard was one of the best and right. learned everything from him. And so that was, you know, the nature of my business thing. The other thing that happened in the very first meeting at frontline management, when I got there, Howard went through the client list and there was Henley and Steely Dan and the Go-Go's and Boss Gags.
4: And Jimmy and got, Buffett. And
5: Jimmy Buffett. And they got to the last name on the list and it was Warren Sealand, And Howard said, uh, Warren Zevon. Okay, well, let's see. He's $180,000 in debt uh, to the IRS. Uh, he's living in Philadelphia. He's a drunk. He has no record deal. He doesn't want to work. He's off the roster. And I stand up and I go, but Howard, he's the best writer we have on uh, on the roster. And he goes, Slater, he's $180,000 in debt to the IRS, not the bank. They're going to come after him. He's a drunk. He's living in Philadelphia. He doesn't want to work. He's off the roster. And I say, but Artists love him, and maybe other people will come here. He goes, Listen, you've been here five minutes. I tell you what, you manage him. Okay, next subject. I was like,
4: Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> so
5: I get the client list. I, I go to my little office. I dial a phone. I go, Hi, Warren. It's Andy Slater, your new manager of frontline management. Click, hangs up, man. I'm like, Well, that's weird. Okay. I call back, get some answering machine, leave a message. Say, hey, it's Andy Slater, your new manager frontline management. Hey, I'd like to talk about your career. Call me back. Nothing. Okay, wait two days, call back, answering machine, leave another message. Okay, finally, a week later, I get him on the phone. He goes, hey, uh, yeah. listen, I was at the dentist today, and I don't really think I can talk to you. Uh, so I just want you to uh, call me uh, Thursday. I'm like, okay, Warren, call you Thursday. Okay, Thursday comes. Don't get him on the phone. So I think, you know what? I'm going to call Peter Buck. Okay, I call Peter Buck up. I go, hey, Peter, uh, Tandy, how you doing? I'm uh, managing Warren Zealand. He goes, you're managing? What, you're a manager? You were just a journalist three weeks ago. What are you <laughs> talking about? I goes, well, you know, it's Hollywood things. So, okay. so I say, hey, you know, if Warren has some songs, maybe you guys would do a demo with him and we can get him a record deal. Now, at that time, R.E.M., I think, had made Murmur. It was just one record. So they were cool and just starting out. And he said, oh, man, yeah. I go, Remember how we used to listen to Excitable Boy? With he goes, yeah, yeah. Said, no, I'll pick him up at the airport. We'll bring him to Athens. We'll, we'll make a tape with him. I said, okay, great. So then I call Gary Gersh, who was at EMI. Nah, he didn't want to do that. And then I call Michael Austin, who just started working for his father.
4: At Warner, Warner Brothers. At Warner Brothers.
5: And I had, you know, he and I had, we had met in Atlanta with Irving. I think he was, he signed a band called Riggs. Anyway, I, I called Michael and I said, look, managing Warren's, Yvonne, will you give me some money for a demo? There's this band, R.E.M., they're cool, we could make. He says, yeah, yeah, I'll give you five grand. I'll send you the paperwork. Okay, great call okay, walking next phone call Warren hi Warren it's your new manager, manager how you doing he goes yeah I'm doing great I go you got you have any songs He goes, of course I got songs kid what are you talking about I'm a songwriter like okay well, okay. because I got this five grand for you to make a demo he goes you got five grand <laughs> I need that money give me that I said no I can't give you the money but maybe we could make a demo there's this band in Atlanta they're really cool they're you know they're REM and they're making their first record you know would you come down to Atlanta maybe with, with them and make a demo and he goes will you fly me first class I go, <laughs> I go, yeah, yeah, we'll fly first class.
6: (laughs) Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary... What's really terrifying, and even deadly, is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.
1: Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you, here on Next Question, is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be, like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull.
0: A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink
3: First class, Peter. I call Peter. Peter picks him up at the airport,
5: takes him out to Athens. Two days later, I call Peter. I go, "Hey man, how's it going?" He goes, "Well, <laughs> you know, the songs are good, but Warren, he teaches us the songs, and then he kind of takes a nap." <laughs> and I'm like, well, "Were you guys working like really late three a.m.? No, like three in the afternoon." I go, "Oh, he must be drinking." He goes well, I don't know. It, it'll be fine. Don't worry. It's, it'll be, I said, okay, man. He goes, i tell you what. We're going to do a show at the 40-Watt Club this weekend. You should come down. I was like, oh, great. Okay. So I got my little haircut, my little jacket, my little tie. I'm now a manager. I you know, go down to Athens. I go down, I go down to Athens. Go walk into the dressing room for the show. Warren's in the corner. He sees me, and he walks away. I'm like, ooh, that's weird. Huh? Maybe it's pre-show jitters. Maybe I'm not going to. Maybe I won't bother him. So they play the show, and it's all great. After the show, I see him in the dressing room, and I walk towards him, and he walks out of the room. And I'm like, "That's this guy's definitely really avoiding me. So I'm standing in the dressing room, and somebody point, pats me on the back and says, hey, Andy Slater, you're back in Georgia. What are you doing? All of a sudden, I feel these two arms grab me and turn me around. He goes, that's who you are. He thought I was from the IRS. He thought I was coming after his <laughs> money. because <So, laughs> I looked like you know, a complete nerd, but- that led to my, you know, relationship with Warren which was really, you know, one of the great the great things in my in my working career and eventually you know, I got him out of Philadelphia. And why
4: was he in Philadelphia? Well, he
5: had fallen in love with a DJ named Anita and I think she was the inspiration for the song Reconsider Me. But uh I Managed to get him an apartment at the Oakwood Gardens Apartments. <laughs> now I was making forty thousand dollars a year, and he was in debt to the IRS, and he will, you know, he, he had other issue, other financial issues, and but I signed in this apartment, and I would get these calls from the Out man there and, in
4: the Valley. by the well, one it was
5: on. It was on uh, Barham. Yeah, I, exactly. Okay. So you know, and it was where it was like a transient kind of place where actors were auditioning for something, came in for two days. Anyway, I got him an apartment there and all kinds of shenanigans were going on. He was shooting a gun off in the department, like, oh, crazy stuff. And, you know, but eventually I I realized I had to get him a car and, you know, there was the, we, the, the frontline management was in the Atlas leasing building and somehow I managed to convince the daughter of the owner of the Atlas Leasing Company to get Warren a Corvette.
4: Oh God!
5: <laughs> so Warren had a gray cor. I got Warren a gray Corvette, and you know he had his apartment, and I kept giving him money, and and he he was playing me these songs, and they were amazing, and I I worshipped the guy. I mean, he was, you know, Warren Warren was really the writer's writer. He was like the. He was like the Lou Archer or the Philip Marlowe to me of the LA scene. And, uh, you know, and, and probably to to a lot of those guys, to, you know, to Don Henley and to J.D. Souther and obviously to Linda Ronstadt, they had tremendous respect for him as a writer. You know, all of his songs, there was never a wasted word in one of those songs. You know, he used to say, he said, you know, when I go for the, when Henley goes for the high note, they give him the Grammy. When I go for the high note, they give me the Heimlich maneuver.
4: <laughs>
5: <laughs> but eventually, you know, I got him a record deal and eventually helped him get sober. I mean, I. how did you d- get him sober? Well, I mean, he, the, the, he came with all these kind of crazy ideas. He'd have like a, you know, a, he had a Polaroid camera that he decided he was going to take a Polaroid of all of his prescription drugs so that when the cops stopped him he'd just whip out the Polaroid when he was loaded and couldn't walk the line he'd just say look I got the thing you know but there was all this, this stuff eventually I think that's something that you know he came to himself and I was just trying to find a place to to, to get him to that would you know he would embrace the idea of being sober and, and I just remember driving him around to these rehabs and, and, and he would you know I remember sitting in one rehab with him, you know, near Fox Studios. I forget the name of the place, and you know, we were sitting there in the in the reception room in the intake thing, and there was some guy in the room, and he looked over. At, the guy looked over at Warren and me, and he said, "I drank the lie. I drank the lie." And Warren looked at me and he said, "Let's get out of here. He
3: said, I'm
5: not going in this place with these kookaboos. You know, but eventually, eventually he got sober and, you know, through his sobriety, great things happened as they do for people who... Okay, so
4: while you were there, you started off 180 grand in debt. Did you ever make any money? Did Frontline, did it ever turn around so they made money? Well,
5: I will tell you something. And this is the great thing about Howard Kaufman, who I miss every day. You know, Howard said to me, you got this guy back on his feet and... You keep all the money for the commissions. And, you know, I mean, like people don't know what kind of guy that guy was. You know, he was a very tough businessman. I mean, you know, I think if you're a promoter, you probably, <laughs> you know, had, had a lot of issues with, uh, you know, with how he, did, how he extracted money from you. But, you know, he fought for his clients and he taught me so many things, man. He taught The first thing, you know, he taught me, he said, your word has to be good. He goes, if you tell a guy that he's got something, that's it. And and I never really had any contract with Howard, any papers, and you know, and in all of our partnerships, whether we worked on Don Henley or the Beastie Boys, whatever, whenever he said this is the deal, it was a deal. And you know, that's not always the case in in the music industry as you and I know it. So so Howard was really really a, a huge influence uh, for me, and uh, and I miss him. But 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 Warren, yeah, you know, but Warren did make money, and Warren did get out of debt, and Warren did all the things that, you know, people do when they get sober, cleaned up all the wreckage and, and had a, and had a great, you know, second run of his, of his career. And, and we, we made a record with REM uh, for Virgin called Sentimental Hygiene. And uh, I, I was a producer of that record, but when I was working on it, I didn't know I was a producer. You know, I had played music with Peter Buck and we So I knew, like, when a song was too fast or the key might have been wrong or maybe there was too many bars in the turnaround between the first chorus and the second verse, you know, things like that. And I was just saying, hey, this sounds fast. Hey, this sounds... So I was in the studio all the time because they were my friends. And I I was saying to Warren, I think he was going to do a song called Boom Boom Mancini. And I said, Warren, you know, it's really... It it seems like it's a piano song. It's not... You know, and so I was saying these things and... At the end of the record, you know, as we went down to the mix, you know, uh, the engineer, Nico Bolas, said to me, you know, you're producing this record. I said, this is what producing is? He says, yeah. And so, you know, Warren, that was the beginning of making three records with Warren and a career of, you know, working as a record producer, taking the things that I'd learned from watching Don Henley make records and the things that I learned from Nico Bolas' engineering records and Greg Ladoni en- engineering records and applying them to the things that I thought I heard that I couldn't play, but I could find other people
4: to play. Okay. How does it end with Warren? Well, it ends
5: in 1991 when I get to a place where I have a little traveling problem where I can't really leave my room that much. You know, I I was...
4: Well, since you're being honest about that, yeah. are we calling that drugs or agoraphobia? <laughs> no,
5: it's not agoraphobia. I I mean, I'm using the metaphor there. I, I, I mean, I wasn't really that happy. You know, I had gotten to these places where I had tremendous success, it seemed like, on the outside. You know, I was managing these people. I was making this money. But inside, you know, there was that – just that – whole and I couldn't figure out why I wasn't happy. And so I was trying to medicate that to, to get the right, you know, the right feeling. And really what it was, was I just kind of needed uh, to be sober and to not chase it chemically to, to be, you know, to have a sense of serenity and, and, and peace with myself. And, and when I went to do that, because I don't think I was a, the kind of, um, drinker or drug user that had the lampshade on their head and didn't have it together. You know, I had a job and stuff, but inside there was a, a, a just a, a, a yearning for the noise in my head to, to just get, to get lower. And, uh, and I couldn't figure it out. And so when I went to rehab, I mean, I, a couple of my friends had gotten sober and, uh, and I said, you know, maybe this is for me. Maybe I should try to do this. And, and I, went to, I went to rehab. I went to a, a, a place uh, in the marina. And when I went to the marina, I got a phone call from Warren. You know, I said to him, look, man, I got I to get my shit together because it's just not happening for me. And when that happened, he said, look, man, you know, I don't know if I could really have a manager that's newly sober. And, and I said, okay. And, you know, and that was it.
4: <laughs> well, What was his thinking, do you think?
5: Well, I also think at the time that there were other influences of other people trying to tell him, hey, look, you know, come with me. Right.
4: And, you know, it's just the way just it is. Just an excuse. It,
5: yeah, you know, but that's just the way it is. Okay, I mean,
4: let's go back. So what came f- – so you're saying that once you go to rehab, all your problems go away? Well, no,
5: what happens when you go to rehab is all the bad problem solving things go away, but then your problems are still there. And so you have to figure out how to, you know, deal with your emotions, uh, in a way in reality. And that takes a little bit of time. And, you know, luckily the, the 12 step program is, is a really great thing because it, it, It gives you a framework to start looking at things that you didn't look at. And if, you know, and I I was super cynical. I mean, I was like, look, I am not going to, I don't want to be in any club. I don't even, I didn't want to join a fraternity and, you know, and, and, you know, in college. Uh, But I got to this room where there were a lot of people, musicians who I respected and people who were talking to me saying, look, man, you know, you're a cool guy, and this is if you do this, this this is what'll happen. And i was like, eh, yeah, right, okay. But but they were smart and they were cool and they embraced me, and you know, I am forever indebted to those guys. Um, you know, and 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 it it slowly worked. It doesn't work overnight, it, but it does. But if you if you you stay with it, uh, and you find your own place in it. You can change your life. And, you know, they. so they tell you, oh, all these things are going to happen. Your fear of financial insecurity is going to be gone and you're going to get everything back. And, you know, so before I got sober, as I said, I was the manager of all those artists and I had been a journalist and I had been a creative director and a record producer and then it all went away. And for four years, not a lot happened. You know, I mean, I was managing a band that didn't really do much and sold 40,000 records and got the deal dropped. And I was at a place where, where's my beautiful reward? I'm doing what they told me to do. And, you know, and then something very interesting happened. I, I was always told in AA, you know, stay out of the results. Just do the work. Do the work in general in life. You're not in control of the universe. There's an order to the universe. Just do the work and don't worry about what happens. I was like, "What is that?" I don't, I, <laughs> and did you have a, enough money? That's, a, that's a, well. I mean, I had a little money. I mean, I had a car that had a rip in the hood that I couldn't drive in the rain, and I had an apartment. You know, one of those creepy apartments that people have. You know, when they're when they're in that situation. I mean, I, but I was okay. I mean, I was making it work. You know, you you make whatever whatever work. I felt I could live in a in a one room in one room as long as I had music and a guitar and you know and a bed and a TV. But so this this thing happened. I, I H- Howard, you know, and the, the great thing about Howard again, when I lost everything, Howard said, "You have an office here, and you'll always have an office here." And when I went to rehab, what I found out, Howard said, "Got everyone in the office," and said, "Andy went to rehab. If I hear any of you tell anyone." in the business, what's happening with him, you're fired. I mean, that's the kind of loyalty that guy had. Anyway, I came out, didn't have a lot going on and I didn't have a lot going on for for three, four years. And then, something strange happened. I had become friends with uh, a lawyer who was representing the Smashing Pumpkins and they were looking for a new manager on Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. And, Howard and I went to Chicago to have a meeting with with Billy and the band. And we go to this meeting, and, uh, and you know, Billy's a super smart record, like a record guy. Could have been one of the great, if he wasn't a great artist, be one of the great, you know, record men of of today. And we talked a lot about music and the things we liked and bands we liked and obscure stuff. And Howard talked about, the record business since 1968 and how you make money on the road and you know how you make money with t-shirts and all the all the stuff he knew better than anybody and we left the meeting and the lawyer said to me you got it these guys loved you and I was like yeah they're right AA is right I'm back I'm gonna be the co-manager of the biggest band in the world this is the greatest thing and two days later she called me and she said, well, Andy, look, they had one more meeting and it was with Cliff Bernstein, right, Peter manage, And they went with them. And I was devastated. I mean, I was at the point where I think all this stuff they're telling me is bullshit. Like I'm, I'm doing what they tell me. I'm living the good life, and, straight life. And, and you're and, going to meetings. And I'm going that. to meet and doing all the things I'm supposed to do, helping other people. And where's the reward? And, you know, I was saying this, I was in New York at the time, uh, it was Christmas, and my girlfriend at the time had a friend who had a kid, and then she had a babysitter for this kid, and the babysitter uh, knew somebody who had made a cassette of three songs. So the babysitter gave it to my girlfriend's friend, who was in the music business, and she said, look, to my girlfriend, I know he's really bummed out. I don't know, I got this tape, I don't know what this is, but... Maybe he can do something with this. It's a tape. It's something. I put the cassette tape on, and there were three songs on it, and the girl's voice was otherworldly. And that girl was Fiona Apple. Now, what, the, the, And so I went on, of course, to, to meet her and to produce her first record, and, and, and you know, we know what happened there. She went on to sell 4 million records. But the point of the story is if I had gotten what I wanted and what I thought, which was to be a manager and to manage the Smashing Pumpkins, I would have probably taken that tape and thrown it, you know, to the side or something, or just not at any time do anything with it. But because I produced that record, and then when I went on then I went on to produce the Macy Gray record, being a producer and selling between those two records, twelve million records, and a manager, led me to the opportunity to run capital records. And so what it teaches you is that do the work. Maybe it's not that's not the way it's supposed to work out. So if you get bummed out and you think, yeah, I should have gotten that, maybe there's something else down the road for you and you know, that's the way you have to live your life because uh, you know, if you if you if you live in regret, and you live in the what ifs, so you will never get anywhere.
4: Okay, three questions. What happened to the girl who was going to become a doctor?
5: Uh, the girl who was going to become a doctor. Well, well, this is what happened. One night, I I came home from being on the road, and I found a parking ticket in my car at five in the morning at some address in Pasadena. I was like, "Hey, what is that? Hey, what, 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 what is there parking at well, five in the morning?" Anyway, it was at some guy's house, and <laughs> you know, um, and he was a doctor, and. <laughs> She eventually married the doctor. But, oh, really? Yeah, and still married to the doctor. Well, had two kids, is divorced, and I. And by the way, I, I she was my high school sweetheart, and I and and I love her and owe her a lot for for not not the least of which is, uh, you know, helping me get seven hundred on my English uh, achievement test. Anyway.
4: Okay, <laughs> so how did it end with managing Henley? Well, you know,
5: I I think again it ran its course. Um, Maybe a couple of things. Uh, I wasn't that together at that point. It was at the point where I was sort of unhappy. And I also think that, you know, as I was managing Lenny Kravitz and Lenny Kravitz had a number two hit record with uh, It Ain't Over Till It's Over, you know, I don't think I was together enough to manage both of those things myself and I was spending more time with Lenny and you know I think that also Irving was coming back from being a record executive and he was coming back to management and look Don was his client and you know his longtime client and and, you know he had every right I think to you know, rekindle his relationship with him or continue the relationship that he had with him and put the Eagles back together or whatever he wanted to do. And I just think that that along with eh, my not paying attention and also my not being that together probably, you know, led to, you know, to, to our, you know, working relationship. Okay.
4: And then then you, we started this with the band you formed in 1991. (laughs) So, what was the, that was after you got sober? After I got sober
5: and there was nothing going on, we, I was playing at the Kivitz Room in, in, in. At At Canters. And, and there was, and by the way, in 1992 and 1993, it was
4: happening. I mean, right, exactly. There was,
5: I mean, Joni Mitchell was there at one point And, and I remember playing on a Sunday night with these three guys and we were playing down by the river and there were five guys in the, in the room. And one of them was Rick James <laughs> and Rick, you know, saw us playing down by the river and had his like one-year-old baby in his arms. And I I, could, which I couldn't believe, you know, we got up on stage and he sang down by the river with us. I think he was in a band with Neil Young. And so, right. you know, he was sort of smiling and, but that's the kind of stuff that was, you know, going on. And Mike Myers came once and, you know, people were, I think Rolling Stone wrote an article on like the cover of the music section. They called it the last schmaltz, you know, the, sort of rock on rye and, and, and all the bands that were playing there. I mean, the Chili Peppers came there. It was like a whole scene. Yeah, right. You know, and Fairfax. But what happened to, to me, so I was playing with these guys and we were doing a bunch of Neil Young songs. And all of a sudden, you know, room was crowded. There was girls. It was, it was happening on Tuesday night. And this guy jumps up on the stage and he grabs a mic and and he starts singing. And he sounds <laughs> exactly like Neil. I mean, he's got it down. So we play a couple songs and, and it's like, and then he just runs off the stage and I put my guitar down and I chase after him. I said, hey man, whoa, 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 where'd you come from? What's going on? He goes, I sell deli meat to the canners. I heard you guys playing." I'm like, <laughs> like oh my God. So, so his name was Gary Williams. And so Gary, you know, said to me at the time, he goes, yeah, I'll come back. Let's, we can jam again. So we start playing and and Gary says- you know, we should form something and I, you know, I I can write and you play great. And so we started kind of trying to put a, you know, a band together and I'm like 32 years old, sober thinking, what am I doing with the rest of my life here? I said, yeah, you know what? I'm going to be in the band. I'm going to be in the band. And then, you know, I had a moment of clarity, (laughs) at which point I realized I wasn't that good at 22. And, you know, I didn't do this with Peter Buck and probably not good enough now at 32, Um, and then I was starting to work with the Wallflowers and, and, and then I thought, well, wait a minute, what did I do here? So Gary said to me, look, I know you're working with this band, the Wallflowers. You either got to commit this thing to me or you're (laughs) going to commit to the Wallflowers. And I thought, bet on myself or bet on Jacob Dylan. I think I'm going to bet on Jacob Dylan. So I, we didn't, the band dissolved, but later, like 20 years later, I saw him at a, at a show and... And I said, Hey man, you remember, you remember how we used to, you know, said, yeah. I said, well, let's, let's try to play again. Cause I was out of capital. I didn't know what I was doing. And so we got the band back together and we started playing and, and you know, it was really because I was, I was dating this girl and, and, and she was playing around town. And she was talking about how important all these gigs were, you know, and, you're you know, jaded. You know how it is. <laughs> right. we, we, we put up with these things that sometimes our, our romantic partners say, you know, because we want to be supportive and then we're supportive to a point. And I was saying, she was saying, and it's so, you don't understand this gig we have at the, I don't know what it was, the hotel cafe. And I said, anybody can play there. It's not that big deal. And, and she goes, it's a big deal. And I said- Okay, so I called up Gary. I said, hey, Gary. We're gonna play. We're gonna play. And we're gonna play every freaking place that she's playing, okay? I'm doing (laughs) a gig everywhere she's playing. So for like, you know, (laughs) a month or so, I just, you know, I had my band and I saw like, you know, honey, see? now I'm playing there Thursday. no, I'm playing there Saturday. no, I'm playing there. I'm playing. I'm playing. But, and then I thought, you know, then I actually thought, oh, wait a minute. Because we were a cover band. And we were were actually a Neil Young cover band, which I hope Neil Young doesn't hear, but he's gonna hear because I just said it to you. But- so we were playing around and I thought, you know, this is fun. This is more fun than having to like make the number for David Munns at EMI. Fuck. Okay. So, but you know, we did it a little bit. We played a bunch of things. We we played in New York and I don't know, I had this one moment where I, I was walking on, um, it was like in the Bowery and I saw this poster and it said the uncred, the unforgettable fire, uh, uh, a true You 2 experience. And I saw singing and I went, ooh, wait a minute. That's me. Ooh, I don't know if I could do this. And I realized I just, I'm about to take the biggest nosedive in the history of the music business. I'm going from a CEO of Capitol Records to the guitar player in a cover band. What, what am I doing? So, you know, I quickly, you know,
4: altered course. Now, was it the other three guys who stayed, too? Or is there an endless no, parade? No,
5: everybody plays in other... They're session musicians, and guys play with other people. But we have a lot of fun when we do it. You know, we still play, like, once a year. But, you know, really, it's... Uh, you know, we're just... We're, we're all such diehard Crazy Horse fans and Neil Young fans that, you know, we, we love playing that music. And Gary and, and Gary and the singer are really great. I mean, you know, unfortunately... And Gary's still selling deli meats? Gary is still selling <laughs> deli meat at canners, where you can find him someday and you too can join to band with him.
4: Okay. Tell us the story of the famous Fiona Apple video. Which one? The one in the
5: back seat of the car. Criminal, I okay. believe it was. Well, that video, I mean, I think it's uh, I think it's a, it was inspired by the photographs of Nan Golden. Uh, if you look, at some of those shots, that's what that is, and that, and, and that during that time, I mean, you know, Mark Romanek, who was the director, who is a genius. I mean, one of the greats. Uh, you know, always had a point of view that came from a place of art, never a place of commerce. You couldn't talk to him about selling anything. He, he was, you know, he was a a very uh, well-read uh, and, and learned guy in terms of the history of, uh, of photography. And so that f- video was really based on that. Um, I do remember one, at one point I came to the set, and it was shot in a Lautner house, beautiful house. I came to the set, and Jeff Aeroff, who was the president of the record company... He he says to me, "I got to talk to you. You you've got to do something." I said, "What, man? What? 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 Everything just looks cool here." He goes, "She's in her underwear and she's filming, and you've got to stop her." And I said, "Uh, okay." So I went over to the set, and Fiona was like in I don't know she was in like a nighty or something, and I said, "Uh, Fiona, I just Jeff Arif just said, uh, you know you, you know you're in your underwear filming, and you." you gotta stop she said I know what I'm doing you tell him I know what I'm doing and to leave me alone and you know and that was and and honestly I mean you know Fiona did, does what Fiona wants to do always you know and I would say that nothing she does is not from a place that's well thought out and uh, you know
4: and and
5: artistic and and
4: okay so the sexual content of that We're attributing to both her and Romanek? I mean,
5: I don't really, when I look at that, I don't see it as that. I mean, it looks like a Calvin Klein ad. You know, it looked like the Calvin Klein ad at the time.
4: I I don't want to get whatever my personal opinion, because we're jaded, perception was that it was sexualized of a young woman.
5: Again, you know, I didn't see it like that, and I haven't looked at it in a long time. I would have to look at it through today's eyes and say that. But really, at that time... You know, it was, uh, it seemed to me like a moving extension of the photographs of Nan Golden.
4: Okay, let's just jump ahead because you mentioned you produced the uh, Macy Gray record. Mm-hmm. Both those acts had gigantic, gigantic uh, success and then never really followed it up. Why is that?
5: Well, Fiona has one of the great careers. I mean, I have to say her influence on modern music, you know, and the singer-songwriter is pretty pronounced, and the records that she's made since then and and I you know, the second record is, you know, I, I would think maybe her best record. Um, but they're all like you know, like I said about Zevon and I would say about Joni. If you read those lyrics, and Bob, you should read those lyrics, there is not a misplaced word. And as an interpretive singer, unparalleled to me. And you know, just look through the stuff. So I think whether it's someone like King Princess, a current artist, you know, who is influenced by her or, you know, just our contemporaries, she stands, you know, as to me as as one of the greats and and I, and I'm not that easy to impress
1: Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Hurick. It is twenty twenty four Listen to next question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
6: Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.
3: Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull.
0: A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink
4: So why do you think she hasn't had another hit?
5: She has a great career. She can do whatever she wants. She has artistic freedom. She can play in... So you don't think
4: that she was inhibited or had a backlash because of the gargantuan success on the first album?
5: I think that, as you know and you have often said in your column... The best way to establish a career in the music business is to build credibility first and a base and expand upon that and never waver from, you know, your artistic endeavors to get to grab for something elusive, like a big hit record. Um, Sometimes you have a big hit, like Radiohead had a big hit, and but they are, they are as good as the success, and they decide creatively to go in different directions. You, know? you could say the same about Neil Young. You know, he has Heart of Gold, and he makes Tonight's the Night. I mean, you know, that success gives you the freedom, if you're an artist, to create in a way that you, that you want. And you can either be beholden to commercial success you know, or use the platform to be a true artist and express herself. And, and I think in Fiona's case, she used the platform to express herself in the ways that she, she wanted to. And what
4: about Macy Gray?
5: You know, Macy was different. I mean, you know, for me, I, I as a record producer, I only wanted to make a record when I had an idea. Or I had songs that I had an idea of something to do with. I didn't want to be in a studio and say, "Okay, this is how I make my living. Let me I'll produce the next guy and I've got to make money doing this." So, I was very fortunate to be able to do that with great writers. Warren was an amazing writer and Fiona is an amazing writer, and that first Macy Gray record has some of the some of her best lyrics on that, that record. I think if you look at any of those songs, they they really are great stories and and real Uh, pure uh, emotions from the heart you know in making the macy record i mean that was also a a, such an incredible experience for me because i got to basically take the records i loved as a kid and rip them off i mean we did sly stone uh, you know why don't you call me it's just us doing sly stone and and uh in um i can't wait to meet you we're doing kind of al green and you know, and in still we're doing Aretha Franklin. So what I was trying to do was trying to make some kind of artful synthesis of old and new. And that's kind of what I always have done. You know, I, I, I have the sonic reference points, so you hear the string sound of something in something modern, or we'll have the Stevie Wonder drum sound, you know, the high, Stevie Wonder hi-hat on something, and you'll hear that really loud. And You know, with that record, I, Macy wanted to make... A rap record. She she loved Lauryn Hill, and she won. And she gave me the miseducation of Lauryn Hill, and said, "This is what I want it to be." And I said, "Here's Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Watch this movie. This is what your band should be. It should be this big rainbow coalition, and you should go around and and that's what you should do." And and <laughs> and there were such crazy things on that record. I mean. You know, I remember we were we were I, I wanted to bring Wawa Watson in to to play on on one of the songs because I was trying to do some stuff with Arique Marshall, who's an amazing, you know, modern young guitar player at the time and and Wawa Watson and and you know uh so Wawa came in and and he set up his whole thing, which took about two hours, which was a Wawa pedal and a guitar. Um and and we we gave him the track, and he he started saying, "Well, you know what I'm going to do now is I'm going to I'm going to gesticulate," and you know, he, and he was talking a lot about what he was going to do, and Mace was getting very frustrated. So so we put the track up, and we're all ready. He's built this moment up. Put the track up, and he goes, "Walk, walk, walk." And she literally grabs me by the collar and she, we go outside and she goes, Get this guy out. Of the why do these old guys have to be in my room? I don't need these guys on my record. And I was like, oh shit. Anyway, but you know, her whole her whole uh uh posse of people were so amazing to work with. I mean, you know, Okay, so
4: why did it why could you she never follow it up?
5: <sighs> you know, I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes and this is just conjecture. I like making first record with artists because a first record, at least back in the day, in fact, you could, before you could make one in your house, you, you, you weren't able to utilize all the tools of the studio. And they come in with these songs that they've worked on their whole lives with. And you take the best of these songs and you can maybe build a sound that becomes the foundation for what they're going to do next. And to me, that's fun because it allows me to do what I want to do. After you sell eight million records as she did, and people tell you you know uh you know how 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 great you are, I guess or how great your music is, then you want to try to expand and do other things I mean, I will tell you this one story. Jacob Dylan went to Carnegie Hall to play a a Neil Young uh, benefit tribute. And it had like Patti Smith and The Roots and you know, all these bands playing Neil Young songs. And I said to Jacob, this is like the, after I left Capitol, I said, uh, who are you taking to play guitar? He said, uh, nobody. I'm just going to use the house band. I said, why don't you take me? He says, you know what? Let me uh, call you back. <coughs> I find that answer. Why not? And to hit Jacob's credit, he called me back and he said, you know what, man? You got me to play in front of the Stones at Dodger Stadium and you got me to play in front of the Who At Madison Square Garden, come with me. I said, great. So Jake came to my house. We learned the song in B. Okay, we go to the thing. We go to Carnegie Hall. Okay, I'm standing on the side of the stage. And I'll never forget this. You know, they're about to walk. And I saw the people that I know in the business. And I think... I think uh, Pete Yorn, the, the, the guitar player, was standing. He says, hey, man, you know, they were about to say, Jacob, you go on. And so I start to walk on, on the stage at Carnegie Hall and Pete Yorn, you could see his face going, no, no Andy, no, 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 that, not you, not you. And, and I was, you no, know, it was me. So I went on stage and I played these two solos. And I'll never forget, I got a text from uh, my cousin. And he said, hey, man, I'm at Carnegie Hall. And, you know, <laughs> Jacob Dylan's guitar player looks exactly like you. <laughs> but I did this thing and after the show, we're at this after party. We're at people who were at the show. Were you, know, you happy money.
4: with your performance? Uh, yeah, I was great. I played right. the
5: song 4,000 times. The one thing is right. was I was nervous. It was very cool to play at Carnegie Hall. Let me say it's also one of the great moments of my life that I get to play lead guitar at Carnegie Hall and people cheer. It was like, wow. But here's the point of the story. So a- after the show, Jacob says to me, oh, you see those people over there? They're looking at you. And I go, oh, Yeah. He goes, you know, why they looking at you? And I go, no. He goes, because you're the lead guitar player. And I'm walking around the reception, and I'm getting that kind of like fish <laughs> eye from people. Oh, hey, I liked your solo. Hey, I liked your soul. And I said to him, you know what? This is why you guys are nuts. If you do this every day, you're gonna be gonna be crazy. Right. So the point is, if you're whoever and you sell eight million records, and people do that to you every day, it has to have an effect on you. And you also want to be in control of your own destiny. And I think Macy wanted to make the record she wanted to make. She didn't want to make that record. And, and that's what she did. And whether or not she was able to, to you know, continue the success of 8 million records or I right, try as a number one record, you know, who knows what those factors are. But clearly, I think we all get empowered to do things that we shouldn't do. And luckily, you know, some of us in the business world say, I must know my limitations and don't do those things. Okay,
4: let's jump ahead to capital. Was that a job you were looking for? You know, I really never sat
5: in a marketing meeting, let alone ran one. And I was not thinking that was something that I I wanted to do. I had gotten three offers to do it. I had a meeting with Tommy Mottola at Scal Nutella, and he wanted me to run one of his companies. And I just thought, eh, I don't know. It's, doesn't. I really want to make some cool shit. I don't know if I eh, – that's a big company. That seems very political. And then when Tom Olley was going to leave uh, Interscope and he had signed that deal with Warner Brothers, Jimmy came to me and he said – Jimmy Iving came to me and he said, you should, you know, you should run uh, Interscope and uh, go see Doug. And I went to see the great Doug Morris. And I had a great meeting with him. And Doug said to me, you know what? I'm going to make Tom Wally work for you because he was still in his contract. Tom and I were friends and I, I went to see Tom and 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 I said, hey man, you know, we had the success with the wallflowers at Aeroscope and everything and I said, you know, what's going on? And he said, look, you know, Andy, you, you got to do what you got to do and, you know, uh, you decide what you want to do and it just, you know, it didn't feel, it felt not right to me. I, it felt like, I guess uh, I just didn't see a path to doing something that I wanted to do, just to have the job and have a title. Wasn't really, I wasn't ever in it for that. And then uh, Ken Berry came to me and he said, look, uh, do you want to run Capitol Records? And to me, at the time, Capitol Records was in a sort of strange place. Roy Lott had tried to transition it from what Gary Gersh had started there and, and he was trying to make it into Arista. And I just saw it as this, this brand that if you were able to connect the legacy of the company to the contemporary business in some way and market that, that you could make it into a place where people would want to go and sign. And I thought, eh, if you have a couple of hits, that's better. And I have no hits. I have you know, Interscope. You got to keep having hits. If you're a Sony company, you better have a lot of hits fast. And so I they they made me a, this crazy offer and i said okay and and, the, <laughs> and 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 the craziest thing you know when i got there i you know again i did something i followed my heart and i didn't really sort of think it through which i have often done in in my life probably personally more than business and and i got to the first meeting and i remember calling up uh I remember calling up Michelle Anthony and saying, you know, who I was very close with, and, she, and I said, look, um, okay, now what do I do? She says, well, look, you're a manager, you're a record maker, you're in publicity, you know marketing. Look at their meeting schedule, go to the meetings and see what you think. So I went to the first meeting, I went to the marketing meeting. You know, I looked at their records and I listened to everybody talk. And, you know, I, I, I made some suggestions to things that I thought and everybody was agreeing with me. I thought, wow, this is crazy. So I went back in my office. I called my brother. I said, Mitch, this is the craziest thing. He says, what? I go, remember how I've been trying to, let, trying to get you guys to listen to me my whole life? Well, I just went to this meeting. Everything I say is true. It's, it's incredible. Of course, I later figured out you know, who was really good at what they were doing and who could do what I wanted to do. And, and, I, and I changed that. But a crazy thing happened. Within the first eight weeks of being there, and I'm just trying to figure it out, in that first eight weeks, Ken Berry says to me, uh, "We're going to merge Priority Records into Capital Records." And I'm like, whoa, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, hey, what? Oh, yeah, 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 you know." And and you know, their roster, their that the company that they built was a great one, but it was a you know a street, uh, it was a you know like the West Coast sort of, uh, rap company, and 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 the roster was you know with all sorts of characters. And I but I, I didn't know anything about hip hop. I mean, I was like, wait a minute, you know, I knew pop, I knew rock. But I said, okay, I'll figure that out. And I met with the people and I figured out who knew what they were doing and who was good. And I kept the people who looked like they knew what they were doing in A&R and promotion. And you know, I said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go with this. And, but two weeks later, my boss gets fired. Ken Berry gets fired, the guy who hired me. And I'll never forget this. I, I call up Howard Kaufman and I go, holy shit. My boss just got fired what's going to happen with this new guy? And Howard says to me, pray he hates you. I go, what? He goes, have you seen your contracts later? They'll have to pay you every dime. And I said, no, 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 I don't want the money. I want it. This seems like it could be fun. Anyway, so Alan Levy and David Buns came in. and, And, you know, in that first year, I just said, let's just whatever sounds like a hit, let's just go with whatever records are done. England, these records are done good. We'll promote these. I'll sign some stuff, and you know, in that first year, I think we had, we had Kali Minogue. We did like a million records, and a band called Dirty Vegas. We did like a half a million records, and then I signed uh, The Vines, and you know, they did they had a, did almost a million records, and Chingy did three million records, and then I took Coldplay because I thought they were good. I went to see them at the Mayan Theater and I'll never forget. And I said to the manager, you know, I, I said, look, if the band will do 150 dates in America, we can break the band. You know, it may not have a bigger hit than Yellow, but that's the one problem I've always seen where English bands have hits over in England and they don't spend the time here, you know, because they were having a problem with Robbie Williams and there was all this disparity between England and New York. And I said, that guy doesn't spend any time. You can't come in and do Jay Leno and think you're going to be a hit. So... You know, Coldplay did all those dates, and you know we sold we sold all those records. And all of a sudden, you know, Muns and Levy they were they were sharpening the, the knife and, and getting the noose and the gun ready to put somebody else. We were having hits, and so, you know, uh, they focused on Virgin and fixing that. And you know, through the course of that, through the course of the time of Capitol, I mean, we broke a British act every year. We broke we broke Kylie, we broke Dirty Vegas, we broke Lily Allen, we broke Graham Bailey Ray, uh, we broke Coldplay. I mean, you know in the history of capital, I don't think you have a British act being broken every year. And, you know, in a way, I think the British company didn't love that because they were so used to ruling the roost and being able to beat up on the Americans. They didn't know anything and these guys can't do anything. And all of a sudden, you know, we were going to the meetings and, you know, we had doubled the market share and, you know, and doubled the profits in like, in like uh, two years. And so it was... It was a good time and, uh, you know, and I didn't really care where the records came from. I mean, I wanted our records to do well. I wanted to sign our stuff and, you know, and we did. I mean, we did 2 million Riello card records and we we signed LaToya, we did a million records with her and a million records with Lisa Marie Presley. And, you know, and all sorts of, uh, you know, all sorts of other stuff. We signed Interpol, we broke OK Go. I mean, we had a long list of stuff that I thought was, you know, we put Snoop with Pharrell and did their first record and did Beautifully, had a number one record. We had a healthy company, I got a new contract, but you know, in the end it's um it's not really what I wanted to do every day. you know, at the end of the day, I love music and I love making music, and the things I did, I did from the heart, and making the number was great, and it was a great education, and I got to do some incredible things when I was there and had great relationships with artists that I really really respect. And th- that was great and and also learning how to you know how to run a business. And 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 having a successful business, but corporate life is a killer and you know you really you have to be more lucky than smart.
4: And how did it end?
5: Well, you know it ended, it was a long tail, you know. Th- there were things there. It's like when we did well, I think they were kind of pissed off, you know, uh, because th- they didn't want us to do that. They didn't want us to do that. They wanted Virgin do good. They hired the guy there. Uh, and when we weren't doing well, and there's always that time, you know, in in, in the course of a five-year plan, uh, they, they didn't like it. But I do <laughs> remember, <laughs> uh, you know, we would have these meetings and um, – well, in one of our financial meetings, we would have these conference, the, the video conference meetings. And so, you know, our numbers were pretty good. We had this meeting with the guys in New York, and, and they kept asking us questions, and we had answers for the questions. Okay, so at the, end of, at the end of the financial meeting, they said, okay, yeah, thank you. They didn't sound too happy. And they clicked the video off, but they didn't turn the video off. So when we left the room, we could hear everything they were saying. And every time we had one of these meetings, they couldn't figure out how to turn the video conferencing off. So everything they said, <laughs> we're going to go after this, and we're going to look at this, and we're going to look at that. This is where this was. And we knew everywhere they were going to go. So in three weeks when they came looking for the numbers of the things, we had all the answers. You know? But it was that kind of stuff. But I think you know, to survive in, at that time at EMI in a corporate environment, I think you, know, you had to be a little bit more political. And I just wasn't political, you know? I mean, w- you know, we had a conference at once where we all got together in the in, in a marketing conference. And I think they had some guy from Saatchi and Saatchi and they were sort of, you know, this was in the, the Muns era. And, and, they, and they had these guys telling us about how to run our business better. And they said, look, the consumer tells you what the product is and what to do with the product. And we do this research. And he said, you know, the research that we did, well, let me show you. We're in there like they got the troop movements and a pointer and I'm (laughs) sure they're going, guys, you want me to make records and run marketing and like make sure the promotion guys are actually getting records played? Like, what am I doing? But I didn't say that. My face, I'm sure, didn't look really real happy all day. Anyway, guy gets to the point where he says, so Palmolive, they wanted to know what to do with the soap. (laughs) And they went and did the research and the soap they realized from the consumers had to be green. So I raised my hand and I go, yeah, but when I tell the soap at Capitol records to be green, they tell me fuck off because they're artists and they're people. And like, I don't understand what we're doing. And I never forget Munz pulled me aside and he goes, why do you have to be that guy? And I said, what do you mean that guy? You mean the guy who's processing facts? Like, I don't know. Like, this is not that relevant. He goes, just go back there and listen and, you know, and don't disrupt things. So, but that was my life. And, you know, I I think that... Um, you know, I, I also, I mean, I remastered the Beatles records, okay? I, I wanted to, I, when I was a kid, as when you were a kid, I had those records, I had some things new. I wanted to, because the Dylan catalog had been remastered and the Stones catalog had been remastered and, they—and like, by the time they were going to decide to do it, I just thought, we got to do this. So I went to Ted Jensen, who was a mastering guy, and I, and, and I went to Neil Aspinall, What you know, May rest in peace. What a great guy, you know, who managed to be those. And I said, will you let me do this? Because I really, I just want to make these things sound good. And he said, okay, you can take those records and you can you send them to me. The British company did not like that because I went straight to the Beatles. But I had a really good relationship with all of them. And, you know, I think that they didn't think I wanted to rip them off or take some money and make my number with their masters they knew like i cared i think and so we made these american records and it really it just irritated them and then i remember i had done a family portrait of our roster and i had figured out how we could at that time of 2003 or 4 take coldplay and the beastie boys and and radiohead and kylie and put them in and mccartney and put them in a photo and put it in billboard and that just made them crazy Because that's – they didn't think of the idea. And so there was constant friction. And I think it ended when they, you know, realized they were going to sell the company and they were showing a certain amount of profit. And to the new buyer, they were showing a program of merging the company and cutting the overhead – and I guess the new buyer didn't really do the due diligence because they were in the, I don't know, bar business, the yeah. refrigerator business. Ter- and they, they terra thought, Firma. Yeah, and they thought, hey, yeah. And then, they, then they merged the company and they just thought they could run as many records and create as much profit. And they didn't realize that they needed, you know, two companies. And also at the same time, you, have to, you know this, there was this like, uh, you know, perfect storm going on where radio – was, you know, consolidating and it was very much about call out research. So that was tightening and retail was going away. And I just don't, and I think you had, instead of being right on 25% of your records, because the profit structure would be a certain way, it now you had to be right about 50% of the time and all of that together with a, a new president who, you know, was, had also a kind of, I think, uh, focus in music that wasn't broad enough to carry the, that company,
4: it all just came crashing down. Okay, let's jump ahead 10 years. Today, mm-hmm. what do you see as the state of the music business and the music today?
5: I mean, it's hard for me to to evaluate the business portion of any of it, really, because I'm not really a student. I'm not looking at it like like you look at it. I like to ask you that question, and I read what you say about that stuff. Um, I mean, I'm happy that music is thriving, and I'm happy that 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 the companies are healthy because there's a, another resurgence of of uh, of money coming in from streaming, and people are you know buying their records again, you know, finding new ways to buy the same music again and new music. Uh, so I think it's healthy. I think the unfortunate thing is that. Everyone can make a record and everyone can put one out and it doesn't matter. So there's so much, you know, we live in this age of, of, you know, of hyper information and short attention span and being bombarded with stuff. And it's just trying to get above the noise. And so that's just in, you know, in our, in our business. And, you know, at, at one time, I think to make a record you had to be really good because you had to get somebody who was going to invest a couple hundred thousand dollars to put you in a studio. And you know, and then you had to have somebody who had vision to make you into the thing, to create that alchemy that we we know is the brand of the band that we love and that we want to buy the T-shirt of. And I I, I don't I, I don't know um, if you know if it's possible uh, to 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 affect popular culture through rock music the way it was, you know, let's say in the last 20 years before the, the, uh, the age of the smartphone where you have all human knowledge in your hand. Um, I mean, obviously the bridge between hip hop and popular culture and pop music is there. It affects other forms of the, of the culture. It affects, you know, fashion and, and art. But, you know, the thing that I love and that would be, you know, more rock music I, don't, I think the bridge between alternative culture and pop culture may be broken. It may be broken forever.
4: Okay. So today you, you consider yourself a manager.
5: Well, you know, I never really consider myself – I don't know if you, I would say that per se because I'm not looking for management clients. I have relationships with a few artists that I love that I work with. And some of it's as a producer, some of it's as a producer and a manager, some of it's just as a manager, but really I, you know, I, I wanted to make this film and I, and I'm, and I had this idea and I made this film. And but before
4: we get to the yeah. film, so what are those acts you're, you're uh, working with? Well, at the moment it's
5: Jacob Dylan, Fiona Apple, who I've known and for 25 plus years, cat power, And a singer named Jade Castrinos, who was uh, in the band called Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. And that's it.
4: Okay, so let's get back to the movie. So you're sitting on the couch. You see this movie, The Model. Model Shop. Model Shop, excuse me. And then you say, okay, uh, we should make a record of these old tunes. Continue the story from there.
1: Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Hurick. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you, here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey.
0: For me, I just let it flow. In
3: these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: When we start getting into the songs, I realize the ones that I'm picking and the ones that Jacob is liking all have stories behind them. And they're stories that are kind of integral to these bands, uh, and I just want to know. I, I want to go find out the the you know the what's behind the songs from the people, and you know so we start to make this record, and you know in making the record because it was a record first, and I I get these songs and I'm trying to find a way to make like in the other records that I made, something modern out of something old. How do I synthesize this into something that's just not tracing paper, bar band, Hollywood in bar band shit? And I had this idea of turning these songs into duets, mainly with women, so that when you hear Never My Love, or you hear Expecting to Fly, that those were songs you know, sung by, uh, by, by, by a bunch of guys. Or a guy. And I turn it into a conversation between a man and a woman. You showed me, done by the turtles, written by McGuinn and Clark. Uh, but when Cat Power and Jacob sing it, it becomes a conversation, and it's a great one. And so, you know, that gives me the the, the impetus to kind of go further and then take some of the arrangements of some things like you would hear in a in a bird song and take the 12 string and put it in a Mama, Mamas and Papas song and, you know, take this string line that you'd hear here and, you know, and, and mix and match. So it gives you the feeling that you're there in in that place, but it's not when you go listen to the original next it. it's like, Whoa, this is way different, but it feels the same. So how does that fun? That to me was interesting and it was fun. And that's, so I started. And then at that point I was like, well, this is something bigger because the collection of songs suggests this time. And around the time that we were doing this, we, first of all, we read your column about going back. Okay. okay. That's number one. Um, and you know, that becomes, you know, part of our, our film, but, um, it, it, you know, it, 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 it's the 50th anniversary of the birth of the birds. And it really starts with the birds, as you know, uh, when the birds electrify folk music in 1965, that, that changes everything for everyone. And I don't know, you know, and when we start to make the movie, we think about the 50th anniversary of that. And so I say, you know, I start to write out a a treatment and find somebody to, I mean, find somebody to believe enough to to, to finance it. And I wasn't going to make the film. I I, I had this treatment. And I went to very accomplished uh, documentary filmmakers. And I said, look, yeah, I was like a rock critic, giving them some, Rock critic theory bullshit, and I said, "Look, this is an important thing." And they're like, "Nah, nah, I don't want to do it. Nah, I need two million dollars." Nah, I'm like, "Okay, well, wait a minute. All right." So somebody said to me, "Look, you hired video directors. You ran all the marketing and you know advertising at your company. You make records. You know these people. Some of them. You make the movie." I said, "I can't. make, I'm not a director." They said, "Sure, you are. You can do it." Because I didn't want to find somebody to Correct. do it. They said, uh, you "Just get this." So I called this producer, and I said, "You know, get me a DP that I can talk to, that I can show them the director of like. photography." Yeah, and get me an editor, and then let's uh, see what we can do. And and you know, that's that becomes the be, you know, the beginning of 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 making the film. But you know, the the that period I, we started by thinking it's going to be the electrification of folk music and how people migrate from New York to L.A., and that's the story. And as I find out, as documentary filmmakers later told me, you found out everything we all find out, which is the story is not where you think it is, but the story is somewhere else, and you find the story. And what I found by talking to these people was that California, which was the ultimate horizontal city, the promised land, the land of freedom, where anything is possible— um, you know, you could go and, 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 and electrify folk music. And so for me, I used it Expecting to Fly uh, as a sort of frame for this film, uh, the beginning, obviously, the beginning and the end. And, and really, to me, that song represents a few things. I mean, that song, you know, it's about the end of a relationship. But even in the title, it's like, it suggests no matter how outlandish your dreams are, you think they're going to come true, which is like that era. And as we know, that kind of boundless optimism never lasts. Right. But you know that period. It really is there. Are, we, we, what the story that I find is that there's really three periods of Little King. There's the period where they, where Roger McGuinn sees the Hard Days Night, sees the twelve string, takes the twelve string electric twelve string, electrifies folk music, and. Every band comes to California because they are supposed to be the American Beatles. They got the velvet collars. They got the whole thing. And and that period of being in a band, you know, which is explored in the film, is really about multiple singers and multiple songwriters and that collective energy that they all saw on A Hard Day's Night. Hey, we're traveling around. Hey, look, isn't this great? We're like our little gang, and they all come here. And that period ends. And, it, and in the film, you really find out you know Michelle tells you it ends partly because she liked Denny and you know, <laughs> right. John and you know Crosby tells you that the birds are you know end because he as he says he was an asshole and it's sort of tied in some ways to him wanting to put triad on the bird's record and they you get with going back because they want to have a hit and Steven Stills tells you okay we, we were, had a wealth of material, but it was divergent directions. And in the end, you know, there's Neil Young in the end, you know, uh, as the, on the search for the individual. Because after the band period, there is the psychedelic period. And after the psychedelic period, it's a retrenchment back to country rock and roots. And I'm telling you things you, you already know, Bob, and have written about. But it becomes the search for the individual. So it's not Buffalo Springfield. It's Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And so for me, I wanted to explore the idea of the band and that period. And the thing that, you know, I think with the film, I was sitting there, and because the contemporary record business had rejected me in that moment, and I left Capitol, I was rejecting it. And so I look back at this film, you know, and I just thought, to this time when things were much simpler and it wasn't so complicated and I didn't have corporate governance and shit on top of me and and so it sent me to to somehow interpret and pay homage to that music that I loved, that I listened to on WABC and Cousin Brucey and WMCA. And I was a good guy and I heard good vibrations and I heard California dreaming, And I thought, God, there's this place. I'm in my little uh, concrete park playing stoop ball and stick ball and it's cold. And that place that, that looks like it does. And it's a mad, 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 mad world with the big W and it's beautiful by the sea and, you know, and, and that's what I wanted to celebrate and the place we live when time was simpler. Because if you squint your eyes and you drive around L.A., you know, and you're always on the edge of nature. There's a coyote in your backyard, <laughs> There's, you know, and it's that, that thing between the city and, and nature. And I just wanted to find a way to give my own creative interpretation like those writers did. Of that time. And this film really represents that for for
4: me. Okay. Anybody who refused to be interviewed?
5: Not really. I mean, each one of those bands is a documentary in itself. The Beach Boys, The Bird, The Mamas and Papas, The Buffalo Springfield. I mean, you know, they all. And even some of those individual members. So to try to, you know, build a singular narrative... That takes you from the brick and Back or 12 string through that sort of period of the bands, you know, to why bands break up to the search for the individual, you, you know, kept it narrow. And there's no one really else that, that we wanted to talk to. You know, again, we, we use Neil Young as the sort of metaphor at the end for the search for the individual. You know, when Stephen tells you,
4: that, right that he leaves that, the band and when leaves, they're
5: going to be on tv it, when going to be on the johnny carson show and you know and expecting to fly was really his warning sign and that you know and that is also that is also the song that i feel like his arrangement with jack nietzsche was a kind of nod to a day in the life on sergeant pepper it's their california version of that i think and and that ushers in the psychedelic period in a sense. And, and so that's why, you know, that, that's the end of the movie and that's the plan. How does
4: Clapton get in the movie?
5: Well, we were trying to find also the 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 arc of how people were influenced in England. You know, we knew the Beatles. Look, I mean, in the film, it, you know, you learn that that Bells of Rimney by the birds influenced George Harrison to write,
0: If, if I, I Needed right, Someone...
5: Right. Which goes on rubber Soul, which Brian Wilson tells you in the film he heard, which makes him write Pet Sounds, which the Beatles hear and they write Sergeant Pepper, and in in doing this, you know the other people that came from England at that time. Obviously, Cream was you know the, one of the biggest bands in the world at that time, English band along with the Beatles and the Stones, uh, and we just wanted to. We knew he had a connection to California and to Laurel Canyon, and when he, you know, tells you that that pet sounds was the thing that the cream was aspiring to do, I mean, I'd never heard that before. And, right. And then he tells you that "Let It Rain" was inspired by questions, and Stephen tells you that that, that blew that my qu- mind. Yeah. That questions was inspired by "Since You've Asked." So the film is really more about the echo of people's ideas than it is about the canyon. The canyon is the place that it, the canyon is the you know place where it takes where it all sort of happens. But, you know, and the other thing is that that we shot a lot of stuff in the rooms where these things were recorded, and we recorded in those rooms. And, you know, to me, having worked there a lot in my life uh, with Macy, with Fiona, the Wallflowers, I, I always was so humbled by those rooms and the feeling I got when I went in there, and they were always beautiful to me. And so I wanted to shoot them in a way that they could be beautiful, because Bob, I don't know if they're going to be here in ten years or fifteen. <laughs> Excellent days. point. Because the with the you know with Hollywood and and the expansion of Hollywood, a single story building on Sunset's worth a lot of land value, and I just don't know if those guys are going to be able to hold out when somebody says here's fifty million bucks and you know. So remember that the the human voice, what we love about the human voice, what we love about Sinatra, you know, besides the tone of his voice. Is what happens when an echo chamber, when that voice is projected in an echo chamber. That's what gives a voice depth, you know, and in some ways, you know, changes the tonality of things. And those rooms, it's Sunset Sound. I mean, you know, some of them are gone. You know, Columbia Studios is gone. You know, Gold Star, as Brian tells you, he loved the echo of Gold Star. You know, that's gone. But those rooms still have it. In fact, I ran into, I was at Book Soup and I ran into Jimmy Page, who I, only know peripherally I don't really know him but I ran into him a couple times and we were talking about we were talking about Bells of Rimney because he had done a I think he had recorded a version of Bells of Rimney and we were talking about he said you know Bells of Rimney that guitar McGuinn's guitar that sounds like the echo chamber at studio one at Sunset Sound doesn't it and, you know, so for him and for right. record makers to, to have that specific a sense about it like it was a Stradivarius, you know, like a specific guitar, is, is something powerful. So, you know, Echo in the Canyon is, you know, uh, hopefully a documentation of, of, of a great moment in Los Angeles history. Okay.
4: Roof. Brian Wilson is surprisingly lucid in your movie. Did you just get the – when he was locked on or was he lucid the whole time you interviewed him?
5: Well – I'll I'll tell you, when we went to talk to Brian, I had never met him. And even though I had, you know, ran Capitol for seven years and we put out sounds of the summer and stuff. But I said to somebody who was friends with him, hey, you know, what what should I do here? Because, you know, I worship the guy. And, you know, I mean, and Bob, when you think about it, the Beatles had George Martin and George Martin was the arranger. The Beach Boys had Brian Wilson. That was all in his head. He was standing there with those you know, incredible musicians, string players, the wrecking crew, adults. And he was this kid with these ideas. So I just, you know, the, the magnitude of, of that, I had to kind of, you know, put aside to get, to capture the, the stuff on film. And I said to somebody, hey, when we talk to him, well, you know, what, what, what do we do? Like, what, what's he like? And what is it? And I said, well, you know, Brian, he loves food. You know, don't, you know, don't just launch into some stuff, like talk to him. I said, ah, okay. So when Brian came to the set, he sat down and, you know, did the interview, and I said, and, you know, he knew I had worked there. You know, somebody told him I had worked there. And I said, hey, man, you, you, you work at the studio? And he goes, oh, yeah. I said, you like chicken? He goes, I love chicken. <laughs> I, said, I said, you know, there's this chicken place called Al Wazir Chicken, you know, uh, just down the street. You ever had it? He goes, no. I go, oh, man. This is the best, I used to eat this stuff every day. This is the best chicken in in Hollywood. and he was like, oh, you know we had we did ten minutes on Al wazir chicken and you know and then luckily, you know he didn't have to answer for the fiftieth time how you know how genius the arrangement in good vibrations was.
4: okay, but you know, they're playing I forget the song. I just uh,
5: wasn't made for these times right
4: and he says, uh, you know." What key? And he immediately knows what key and what they're playing. It not a chance. It's like you know, it's like a lightning striking from the sky.
5: Well, I don't know Brian well enough to tell you if this is true, but you know, maybe he just doesn't want to talk to everybody, so he goes into that. You know, if he wants to talk to you, he'll talk to you, and if
4: he doesn't, he'll just kind of say, "Well, I'm Brian, and uh, I'm not going to give it to you." Well, actually, a new movie is coming out. Yeah. Interview with Brian Wilson, the editor Jason Fine of Rolling Stone, sure goes around in a car. I'll save the story for him. But making the movie, okay, what are two things you learned that you didn't know?
5: That I have to have a lot of respect for filmmakers because it is an incredibly difficult job. And that I probably could not have done it in any point in my life if I had not done every job, been a writer been a record producer and a musician and an executive because of what it takes to really piece it together. So, you know, I also learned that the, the film business is, uh, is a difficult place and a music business is like a playground <laughs> to that. So it's, uh, yeah, I could go on and on, yeah, but that would yeah. be a
4: different riff. You know, the way I always say <laughs> is, you know, you could everybody can listen to a record. And whether the person be 10 or 75, they'll say, well, had a good beat and I could dance to it. But you put a five-year-old in front of a TV show, they'll say, well, the plot wasn't believable. I didn't like that. (laughs) Everybody's got a damn viewpoint in the film business, never mind the money and the distribution.
5: I I will tell you that there were people who said to me,
4: ah, just put the concert
5: footage. Ah, what is all this stuff with the (laughs) thing, what the heck? Come on. And I was like... Oh, God, I do remember this. I remember when I, you know, it, it reminded me of a moment uh, when I had first produced Shadowboxer. And Fiona and I went to meet Donnie Einer. And I had the demo there to, you know, to get, to, to get the funding to do the, to do the record. And we went into the office and Donnie said, Ah, this is Fantastic. This is just like Visions of Love. Mariah Carey, you know I'm a Visions of Love? That's what you need to make this. You need to make this. You need to listen to Visions of Love <laughs> and you need to make Visions of Love. And Fiona looked at me like, With horror on her face as we were walking out of there. And I, you know, because I had said, oh, okay, yeah, Vicious, ah, six, eight, it's a waltz also. Yeah, I see where you're going with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I walked out of the office and Fiona looked at me like, what? And I was like, no, 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 no. We just tell them yes. We just get the money. We do what we want. (laughs) You know, but the same thing in, in the film business, you know, when you're trying to get money from people, you just, you know, unfortunately, you have to be right. I mean, you know, you have to have something that has success because if, because if you're wrong, they never talk to you again. Luckily in the music business, you know, I, people made money every time I asked them for money and they kept giving me money to do things. Um, I was only doing things when I thought I could, you know, make something interesting. But th- the film thing is very, was, was very tough because it takes more money. And, and you, you know, when you make a song as a producer you listen down for three minutes, you know what you got, you go to sleep, you wake up the next day, you listen three minutes. You get to a certain point when you're making a film, you have to watch the hour and a half film to know what's going on. And in the course of making this film, there were things that I really wanted to cover. I wanted to cover the Sunset Strip and Love and the beginning of Garage Rock. And I wanted to cover the Monkees because they were, you know, Hollywood's interpretation of the Beatles. And you, know, it, and you realize that as the narrative is being developed and as you're But you're sitting there, something becomes an elbow, and it becomes too long. And it could be two minutes. But you've got to watch an hour and a half all the time to really get it just like a song. You know, when you think the bridge is too long or the turn. So, So How many
4: times do you think you watched it?
5: I have to say 500. I mean... (laughs) It just, it's what, it's what it takes. And when you're doing the sound and when you're doing the mix and you're doing dialogue and you have to do, then you have to do the, the underscore and the dialogue and the, some of the effects that you're using. And, you know, then the mix, the mix changes things. So, you know, it's like, it's like 3D record making, you know, it, it, it's not 5-1, you know, it's not a 5-1 mix of a record because you've got picture and you, and and you got the color of the picture and, you, you know, all of these, things And you got old footage and you want to try to blend things. And so I love the process of that. I love being able to create it. I, I love that somebody gave me the opportunity and gave me the money to do it. And I hope I can make their money back for them. Really Would you it.
4: make another movie?
5: Well, I have the rights to, to, uh, to another film. And and to another story, another music story, and I and I'm a little beat up to be honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> Getting to the just so being I, on the but, road for three but, years. Well, yeah, you know. So I, but I do want to do it. I mean, the miraculous thing about this film is that somebody decided they liked it and they were going to put it at the Cinerama Dome on you know, and that's where the ArcLight wants to show it. I mean, the ArcLight, they they you can't really tell them what to do. They know they have the best movie theater in America and, you know, and obviously the landmark has a, you know, has a great, has a great theater here too. So I am just, uh, you know, not shocked, but, but really uh, in awe of the fact that the place that premiered Apocalypse Now and E.T. and Star Wars uh, and the, it's the premier movie house in America. It's 800 seats. It's when you go in there, It's incredible. Uh, that they wanted to show the film there and premiere the film there. So I'm.
4: That's May 24th, right?
5: That's May 24th.
4: And then, how long till people in the rest of the country can see it?
5: Uh, it opens in New York at May 31st. After that, at the uh, at the Angelica and at the Landmark uptown. And then it goes to San Francisco, San Diego, Chicago, Boston, and all the cities in June 14, June 21. And as of now, it's a. It's at 50 cities. But the one good thing about what's happening on the 24th, if this is relevant, uh, the band is going to play music that night after the performance. They're going to, we're going to do music four nights in the, in the Dome, which they've never done four nights in a row. And on one of those nights, Stephen Stills is going to play and Cat Power is going to play and Jacob's going to play. And it's, it's, it's going to be a it's going to be a, a great celebratory event with the old and the new.
4: Okay, you've been wonderful, Andy. You know we could really go on for hours. You've done a good job of telling your story and keeping it interesting. That's Andy Slater, writer and director of the new film Echo in the Canyon, and you've heard in the podcast all the other things he's accomplished in the music business. Andy, thanks for coming. Thank you, Bob. Okay, till next time. It's the Bob Left Sets podcast.